A Star Fell by L. J. Beeston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ed Humpel. A Star Fell by L. J. Beeston. Part One Man Proposes. Letter dated September twenty second, two thousand and four from Professor James Clinton Gray to Wilhelm von Belieu of Berlin. My dear von Belieu, here's a clatter about my unfortunate ears. I am assailed on all sides. Will the time never come when a man with a new idea will obtain an attentive hearing and abuse afterwards, if he deserves it? You have seen the papers, of course. The mildest term applied to your poor friend is that of visionary. I am assured that if I had lived in the past century, in the so-called advanced days of the seventh Edward, I should have been reckoned amongst the mad ones of that period. Possibly. Well, hard names hurt nobody. I believe that my idea will grow, will become a hypothesis, then a thesis. I am prepared to test my own opinions. I am ready to attempt to carry out this stupendous experiment as was anticipated even in the slow times of the Victorian era, the rise and progress of the power of electricity has been steady and assured. Today we find only pleasure craft upon the sea. Our great liners traverse the air, racing the swallows. The steam locomotive is a thing forgotten, that panting, unwieldy piece of mechanism. And still this power holds out the most gigantic possibilities one of which is now within my grasp. I will explain. My claim is the discovery of a new application of the electric fluid, whereby I may attain so enormous a speed as to practically annihilate space. A prophet has no honor in his own country, and the state has declined to help me evolve my model into the great dimensions of the airship which I propose to build. The German government, whose feelers are all over the world, offered to buy my services, and my secret. It was a temptation, and only a certain love of country held me back from it. As of old, England and Germany are today prepared to spring at one another's throats, and my airship would involve the destruction of any present-day aerial navy. Fortunately, friends have come forward to assist me. The work is progressing. The time is at hand, that time so dreamed of in all ages, when the planets shall become our stepping-stones, I use the word advisedly, when man who has conquered so many things shall conquer space also. I feel my blood burn as I write this. I can scarcely contain myself. Do you wonder? I am thinking of making a very serious move. You know Oppenheim, the German inventor? He is an extremely clever fellow, and has some good ideas in these matters. I have a mind to suggest to him that we combine our intelligences. He can help me, I can help him. In so stupendous a venture as my forthcoming flight through space, it is hardly wise to rely upon a single brain. Can I trust him? And now I am going to revert to that word stepping-stones, which I used just now, for it sent me to the strangest idea which has brought a storm of criticism upon my head. Our span of life upon this third planet from the sun is some seventy years. The conditions that surround us here will not permit of a longer tenure. I hold it possible that life, as we know it, once removed to another planet, 
might be extended and so changed in environment might be renewed indefinitely and so this question of immortality which has so long distracted the minds of thinkers becomes a solved problem inaction is death always has been but if we move from sphere to sphere we may attain our full heritage the ultimate aim of our existence are you laughing my friend as you read this well all the world is laughing i shall act yours james clinton gray from the same to the same my dear von Ballou, a most extraordinary incident has occurred i am the subject of a charming adventure a pretty woman has offered to accompany me on a voyage across twenty-six million miles of space one moment i received your letter in which you warn me concerning oppenheim your terms of unscrupulous and unprincipled render me uneasy i had asked for his help he seemed enormously pleased but i shall now back out of it as best i can now for my adventure i was at brighton on the wednesday of last week a century ago they used to run to this seaport their wretched little excursion trains but the town is now almost a suburb of london near to it is my house built on a quiet spot in the sussex downs it was evening and i strolled on to the pier which was almost deserted the wind that had been blowing all day had spent its strength the sea also appeared to be resting the sun was sinking dragging after it the young moon that showed itself only to retire the waves rolled shoreward in long languorous swells falling with a melancholy sound upon the beach and uttering deep sobs as they rose and fell through the iron stages of the pierhead as i walked on the pier watching the death of that autumn day i perceived the mammoth airship the fireball as it showed for an instant through a break in the cumulus clouds she was bound for sydney and she came and went like a sigh suddenly i heard a voice behind me am i not addressing professor gray i turned and saw a lady looking at me she was tall with dark hair and dark eyes i likened her to the spirit of the mournful autumn evening she was certainly very beautiful my dear von Ballou. i bowed we exchanged a few remarks i believe in you she said frankly yes while others scoff i believe in you heart and soul i made a deprecatory gesture but i was immensely pleased i will introduce myself she went on with a sad smile i am miss alexandra porteous i am deeply interested in aerial navigation there was a moment of silence then she continued your forthcoming great venture possesses a fascination for me that you will reach the planet venus is my earnest wish how fast do you propose to travel as the extent of my journey will be some twenty-six millions of miles you will understand that the rate of progression must be enormous i shall rise with comparative slowness until above the atmosphere then my flight will become meteoric why slow at first because my dear lady i do not wish to transform myself and my machine into a meteor a shooting star that would be an apotheosis not desired i must confess that i do not altogether understand it is simple 
The meteorite is a small body weighing a few pounds or a few tons, at any rate quite minute when compared to the earth. It revolves round the sun as we do. On occasion it gets too near to the earth, which draws it from its orbit by gravitation. It is a fatal moment. Nearer and nearer to our great world it comes, rushing harmlessly through the airless fields. But when it plunges into the atmosphere, which extends so far above us, then friction is instantly developed by the tremendous flight of the missile. It becomes hot, red-hot, white-hot, and finally is fused into a glowing vapor. You have observed the process a hundred times, for the meteorite is just a shooting star. Very well, you will perceive that if I compel my machine through the upper air at its full velocity, which is immense, it will become fused, drifting off into glowing vapor by the friction. She thanked me charmingly for the explanation, and said, Why do you choose this star out of so many? Because its size is much the same as that of the earth, so I need not fear a gravitation to which I am unaccustomed and, as it is much nearer to the sun than we are, its climate is probably distinctly warmer, from which I infer that life there is more highly developed. She turned her superb eyes full upon me. Oh, she said, her voice tremulous, I have read, read a score of times, your articles in which you argue for a practical immortality, in which you state with force and daring that when man commands the spheres he will command death itself. Her excitement troubled while it thrilled me, and I deemed it wise to gently remonstrate. Pardon, my dear lady, I replied. My articles are not so much statements of fact as hints at possibilities. So much depends upon the atmosphere of other worlds. Though compressed oxygen may serve while we travel thither, yet I finished the sentence with a shrug of my shoulders. At that instant we saw the racing airship Orion pass far over Brighton, it was then quite dark. Her arc lights extended into the upper gloom, like enormous white gleaming swords. She flashed underneath the stars, and was out of sight ere one might count three. Miss Porteous turned to me with the strangest look in her eyes. She said, in a low voice, How terrible night is! It always makes me afraid. They try to illumine it. The light creeps a few yards into space and is lost. Can anything be more pitiful? I was somewhat surprised by this remark, which seemed to show a neurotic temperament. I replied, tamely enough, Get the night is not without charm. I shall not readily forget her answer, which ran through me as a cold shudder. Placing a hot hand upon mine, she said, Since the world was born, night comes to remind us of the lasting dark. Yes, night has its beauty but death has no beauty, none. I read her meaning instantly, and strangely enough I read her intention. This emotional creature feared above all things the king of terrors, feared time, which must rob her of her beauty, sap her youth, wear down her ideals and enthusiasms, feared death, which she called, quite wrongly of course, the lasting dark. And she was ready to risk the present on one great throw, believing utterly in my hypothesis she was prepared to leave this earth which is filled with graves truly my dear von Bülow, it is well to be careful of one's words well to conceal our opinions until we are sure of them i was greatly troubled 
By this time you have probably guessed the rest. I fell in love with Miss Porteous that autumn evening. Within three days I told her so. Does she love me? It is my hourly prayer. Anyhow, she is with me in this venture. All London knows it. All England execrates me. There is even talk of persuading the authorities to interfere with the expedition. You know me too well to believe that I shall change my mind. We shall be married in less than a month, and shall start directly afterwards, if possible. Yours, James Clinton Gray From Wilhelm von Bulu to Professor Clinton Gray My dear friend, I have just received your letter, which has filled me with astonishment and apprehension. My affection must justify my plain speaking. I am jealous for your honor, anxious for your success, and when I hear of a woman in your purpose, I can but lift my hands in horror. What, you in love? Fiddlesticks! I will not hear of it. You must disencumber yourself of this stupidity. For the venture that lies before you, you will need concentrated energy, nerve, stamina, immense courage. Marriage is not for you. Understand that. It is a luxury which you must forego for the present. Do I speak my mind too freely? Pardon me, you have made me so hot. Concerning Justice Oppenheim, I am watching this man. I shall be surprised if I do not find that he is a spy in the pay of the German government. He is extremely jealous of you. In Berlin, the general opinion of you is very high. It is believed that if there is a man living, capable of destroying the superb German aerial squadrons, that man is yourself. They want your secret which will render present-day airships slow-moving as snails. Oppenheim wants your secret to perfect his clever ideas, and will not stick at a trifle to obtain it. Be careful, be suspicious, and fling this sentimentality to the winds. Your affectionate friend, Wilhelm von Bulu. From Alexandra Porteous to Justice Oppenheim of Berlin There is a statement in your latest communication, which astonishes, though it does not frighten me. You say, if you play false, the worst possible consequences will befall you. I suppose you mean that I shall die suddenly. It is a pity that you should use these threats, for I must throw myself on the protection of the man I love. Yes, I love him. I disregard your bitter sneer. After all, I have wronged you, but by doing so I righted myself. You come to me with your tempting offers. You suggested that if I would play the spy under you, who are also a spy, that I would discover the secret of that application of the electric forces, whereby Professor Clinton Gray hopes to attain his great speed. That if I would betray to you this secret, you in turn to sell it to the German government, you would give me any price which I might care to name. And I wanted money, and I closed with the offer, and I became acquainted with the professor and I acted a part, and I lied to him, and I learned all that you wished to know. And then, ah, if you knew how impossible it is for me to work him so deep an injury, so great a wrong. He trusts me. He tells me everything. His brain is wonderful, but his heart is a little child's. When he knows all, for I shall confess all, he will forgive me. I am too well acquainted with you and your purpose to think that you will yield. I know you now for an enemy. You need not have told me that. You offer me one more chance. I decline it, 
you hint that you will find means to compel me to abide by our compact. That is impossible. You speak of the penalty that I shall incur. I repeat that your threats will not intimidate me. You will understand why I prefer to leave this letter unsigned. Ethergram from Wilhelm von Bulu to Professor Clinton Gray I am right and you are wrong. Beware the woman. She is a traitress. Am writing. Von Bulu Ethergram from Professor Clinton Gray to Wilhelm von Bulu You are an insulting ass. I married Alexander this morning. Tomorrow we start. Clinton Gray Part 2. God Disposes From Professor Clinton Gray to Wilhelm von Bulu My dear von Bulu, no doubt your eyes were amongst the first to see the news. My undertaking has ended in these frightful episodes. Could anything more extraordinary be imagined? Anything more terrible? I am half stunned. I keep thinking that I am in a nightmare's grip that presently I shall awake. All round me are ethergrams and letters, for the world which was so hostile to my plans shows now a face of charity and sympathy. I am going to tell you exactly what happened. When I had made Alexandra my wife, I promptly dismissed the subject from my mind, since my proposed flight through space required much preparation. I did not see Alexandra for some five or six hours after leaving the church, then, having a spare quarter of an hour, I went out in search of her. She was not in the house. No one had any clear idea as to what had become of her. I went out, expecting to find her in the near neighborhood. Evening was over the downs. My house is built in quite a solitary part. It is always so still there that the tinkle of a sheep's bell, the lowing of oxen, the sound of a motor horn, or the whir of an aeroplane can be heard with distinctness. There is a clump of wood behind the house. The sun fires it in the morning, and in the evening it becomes black and forbidding. Suddenly I perceive two figures pass across an opening in the hedge, and I recognized my wife, who was walking with a man whose face I failed to see at that distance. First my curiosity was aroused, then a jealous feeling. To crush the second I resolved to satisfy the first. Moving quietly across a stretch of downland, I gained the near side of the hedge. I had no right whatever to play the part of a spy, but I was a little piqued at my wife's absence at that time, and I yielded to a weakness that was unworthy of me. I moved with caution round the hedge, which was being stripped of its leaves by the autumn decay. By that time it was almost dark. The rooks in the wood uttered occasional caws that sounded like sardonic laughs. Suddenly I heard my wife's voice. She was speaking in anger. If you have come so far to make me change my purpose, you have come in vain. I will have nothing more to do with you. Neither must you attempt to see me again. When I heard those words, the slumbering jealousy broke into a flame. I suffered a dreadful pang. Then the man spoke. It is all very well for you to adopt this high tone towards me. You know that you are pledged. Astonishment held me rigid. I had recognized the voice. The speaker was Justice Oppenheim. What was he doing there? 
what right had my wife given him that he dared to address her in this way her answer came quickly i reject our compact that has made me despise myself and you have informed clinton gray of the matter said oppenheim his voice was shaking with passion that does not concern you replied my wife haughtily at these words a sudden trembling seized me a deadly sickness would she deny the charge no she silent silent come come went on this pretty villain it is not too late now give me the help i want and i in turn will give you here in banknotes the sum of one thousand pounds he need never know i swear to you that i will keep silent you have my answer will you not go cried my wife stamping her foot two thousand then not for two millions he drew a long breath very well said he be sure that i shall not let the matter rest here it was then that i interfered calling out the scoundrel's name i forced a way through the hedge cutting myself somewhat in the process oppenheim turned on me like a wild beast eavesdropper he snarled you rascal i retorted get off my grounds or i will summon a keeper to have you flung into that ditch for answer he snatched at something in his pocket i saw a dull gleam then my wife uttered a piercing cry and threw herself before me there was a spurt of flame a whip-like crack the ball which was meant for me entered my wife's body i felt her shudder heard her moan then oppenheim was swallowed by the dark night and i was left crying loudly for help not daring to leave the dear form in my arms her face was ashy whitened she kept gasping my name god it was awful twenty minutes later my wife was under the surgeon's care she was in that condition when life and death hang equal in the balance then my dear friend i went mad you know that i am by nature of a mild disposition holding it supreme foolishness to waste in any emotional excess that nerve force which is the stay of all character but i will confess that on this occasion i gave full liberty to my passions my one desire was to find justice oppenheim that i might kill him i rushed from the house with this intent a wonderful scene met my eyes the police had been notified of the matter and a dozen officers were already on the roads on motorcycles news of the affair had flown here there and everywhere it had reached brighton in which town for hours past a stream of visitors had been gathering with the purpose of witnessing the commencement of my flight that was to take place from the grounds without my house and all these people an enormous crowd mounted on bicycles motorcycles automobiles of every possible description and on horseback had come in haste to the scene of the crime that they might assist in discovering the villain who had done me so great a wrong and who had disappointed them of the spectacle which they had come from all parts of the country to observe i wish that you could have seen that wonderful sight far over the winding roads amongst the downland shone thousands of lamps illumining the otherwise black night the tinkle of bells the tooting of motor-horns sounded incessantly the deep hum of the voices of that immense gathering drowned the cry of the sea that was beating a full tide against the chalk cliffs the darkened fields swarmed with searchers bearing lanterns what would happen if this angry host caught oppenheim they would tear him to pieces 
unwilling to mingle with this army of sympathetic friends i resolved to wait and abide events but insensibly the excitement of the search drew me from the house the flames of a burning barn were reflected against the stars the building had been fired by some madman under the impression that the fugitive was concealed there the handful of police were now looking for the fellow who had destroyed the barn an hour passed and oppenheim had not been discovered suddenly a man's voice addressed me is that you professor i at once recognized inspector reddish of the police he was on horseback a body of men was under his control but he had lost them in the darkness and confusion he sat with his horse backed up against a briar hedge and he wiped his face which was streaming with perspiration ever see anything like it said he i was about to make some remark when a harsh deep throbbing sound pulsated through the still air the inspector turned his face to the sky, expecting to perceive an aero-car driven by a petrol-motor, but nothing met his gaze save a multitude of stars in the quiet heavens. "'That's funny,' he observed, when I interrupted him with a shout. "'Oh, fools, fools!' I cried out. "'What is the matter? That sound! I know it among a hundred. He appeared to snatch at my thought. "'What? You believe? That someone is starting the electric motors of my airship!' and that someone is possibly is most certainly oppenheim himself the man we seek for pity's sake quick quick will you get up behind me he asked and i at once accepted the offer it was only a quarter mile back to my house and the horse covered the distance in a few minutes an avenue of trees led to the building we tore along it at the house i dismounted this way i cried running round to the outbuilding where i had constructed my airship the latter had been run out from the shed that evening into an open meadow. A canvas tarp had been roughly erected to protect it from dew. This was thrown down. A terrible noise issued from the bowels of the airship. I had but a single hope, that Oppenheim's knowledge of the intricacies of the huge machine would not prove sufficient to enable him to start it. When at the distance of fifty yards, we saw the arc-light of one of the airship's lamps flame into the opaque gloom at the same instant the pounding of the impatient motors was redoubled too late he's off i cried shaking my fists in impotent rage a loud laugh of mockery rang out oppenheim had beaten us the inspector so far forgot himself as to curse with vigor then something occurred which was unexpected unparalleled frightful the airship leaped into space higher higher moving at a great velocity silhouetted against the stars like an enormous bird it seemed at that moment that the fugitive was safe from justice that no power could avail against him but he was far from understanding properly the complex mechanism of my airship and possibly in an endeavor to attain greater speed or to check the progression which he had already attained he contrived in his haste and nervousness to give full vent to the motive force that could impel the machine with the pace and power of a meteor the result was that the airship became a projectile that the thin air which is so impalpable to our touch resisted the tremendous velocity of the flying machine that the friction developed by that resistance heated the metal red-hot white-hot and finally dissolved it in a streak of glowing vapor as we stood gazing into the eastern skies from a point between andromeda and the pleiades a star fell it was my airship 
with its occupant, fused in ten seconds of time into nothingness. The inspector fell face downwards, burying his face in the horse's mane, groaning with sheer horror. I dropped on my knees, yet I was too appalled to think, to speak, to pray. I will anticipate your questions, my dear Von Belieu. You are asking, will these misadventures daunt him? Will he resign this project that might have made us masters of space and time? These few additional lines to my long letter are penned after the lapse of three days. My dear wife is now out of danger, and her complete recovery is promised. She faced death that she might save me. How much care, how deep a devotion do I owe her? Secondly, the end of Justice Oppenheim. While it has not shaken my nerve, has yet made me pause. The upper void swallowed him so easily. The forces of space annihilated him as callously as we destroy, by a movement of the hand, the tip of phosphorus on a match. And I asked myself that old question. Shall we not make the present bright, rather than dream of gilding the future? I may be wrong. Alexander, when he sighed for new worlds to conquer, may have shown the greater spirit. Anyhow, my project is shelved for a long time to come. Do not be angry and call me hard names. I send you a quotation from a nineteenth-century poet, which will help to explain my present mood. The whole round world is every way bound by gold chains about the feet of God. My dear Von Belieu. Yours, etc. James Clinton Gray End of A Star Fell